Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. And this is Stephen Kravitz, and you are listening to People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. We've had a bit of a break over Pesach, but we are back in full force today with a pile of books, and we also have giveaways as well. So keep listening, keep your fingers close to your phone so you can enter our competition. And we're going to get straight into a bit of updating some of the books that we've spoken about and interviewed the authors about here on People of the Book. And the main book I'm going to talk about is the... The, the book Gangster State, which was released last month, uh, the author Peter Louis Marburg was interviewed. We had an hour-long interview with him. And the book is still in the news because a Durban-based businessman has launched a 10, billion, a 10 million rand libel suit against the author and the publisher, saying that parts of the book about his company getting a tender to build houses in the free state is all false, but the publisher and the author, the publisher Penguin Random House Books, and the author Peter Louis Marburg are standing by their story. So that is an ongoing news headline generating book. If you haven't read the book, do not access it via the PDF file that is pirated and is going around social media. It doesn't really benefit anyone besides you to access information through that channel. And it also doesn't allow the journalist who really did put his life on the line, nor the publisher who backed the book to make any profits from the book and it undercuts the it actually undercuts the whole publishing industry to access books over PDF files that are pirated and then sent over WhatsApp then just to talk about a few of the things to look forward to here on People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM in terms of interviews May is quite an exciting month for the book industry in South Africa because there are a number of book festivals, Franschuk and Kingsmead come to mind. And because of these book festivals, a number of authors are flown in from overseas to come to South Africa and share their knowledge and their passion for their books and their subjects with the reading audiences, the, 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 the readers, their readerships here in South Africa. And so we do have a number of authors who will be joining us in the studio. And the two big ones who are both coming in on the same day are Heather Morris, the author of The Tattooist of, Ar- the Tattooist of Auschwitz. We have interviewed her before here on Chai FM. We, we, we had an interview with her last year in June, shortly after her book, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, became an international publishing phenomenon. We'll be talking to her about the last year and how the phenomena that is her book has changed her life. We'll also be talking about the new book that she's going to be publishing sometime around October time, which is a continuation of the story of one of the people in the tattooist, the tattooist of, of Auschwitz. Then we're also going to be speaking to 
very, very respected and very, very influential British historian, Simon Sebag Montefiore. He is an historian, and his non-fiction books have covered a lot of Russian history, the, the, the young Stalin, the court of Stalin, the Romanovs, and also Jerusalem. He wrote a book called Jerusalem, a biography. And then he also is the author of three non-fiction, three fictions, three, three novels, all based on his extensive knowledge of Russian history. Sashenka was the first of his three Russian novels. And, uh, he has two, you know, two others. He will be here in South Africa and he will join us in the studio as well. And a lot of his books are being made into documentaries or into films. So he's a name to watch. His latest book is a collection of historical letters of great importance. We did review it here on People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And we have the great privilege to look forward to him joining us in the studio. When he is in South Africa, we'll be back with more news about who we'll, we will be interviewing and who we hope to be interviewing here on People of the Book straight after this break. The book of love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. Uh, yes, this is People of the Book, and we are talking book news who we will be interviewing here on Chai FM over the next month and so. The next person who we'll be having on the show is James Elroy. He is an American crime fiction writer and an, and an essayist. He became known for a number of his books, which were collectively known as um, the L.A. Quartet. And that includes the books L.A. Confidential and The Black Dahlia which were published in the 1980s. He's been published as an author for over four decades. Crime fiction, historical fiction, mystery fiction, uh, these are his genres. And his latest book, which is coming out in May, is called That Storm, and it's set in Los Angeles during World War II. He is one of the great American writers alive today. And we have the great privilege of having him join us here on People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. His, his, the publications of his books are such big events that, uh, I saw just this week in the run up to the release of his new book, uh, The Guardian newspaper has a uh, a book club where they all read the same book and they've decided that May is James Elroy month and there was a poll for people to participate to decide which James Elroy book they should read together in anticipation for the release of his new book later this month. That new book is called That Storm and it is uh, set in Los Angeles during World War II. So that's something else to look to look forward to. Then I'm putting a requ- I've put a request through. Uh, let's hope something comes from it. There is uh, a religious American Jewish conservative or right wing uh, political commentator. His name's Ben Shapiro. He's become quite a YouTube phenomenon. He was involved with Breitbart News under Steve Bannon, and since 
uh, he parted ways with Breitbart News. He started his own media platform called The Daily Wire. And you can go onto YouTube, look up Ben Shapiro. He's famous around America for having very set views. He stands for morality. He stands for Jewish values. He's live on TV with a kippah on his head. He goes around and speaks at universities in America with a kippah on his head. He quotes the Aserus Adibros, the Ten Commandments. He's proudly Jewish. He proudly stands up for Jewish values. He's written a book called The Right Side of History. I have put a request through for a review copy, and I'm emailing the company, the, the publishing house here in South Africa, to try set up an interview with Ben Shapiro. Uh, nothing, you know, there's, there's no guarantees, but let's hope that something will come of that because he is quite a kiddush Hashem, the man who stands up for Torah values. He, uh, he's proudly Jewish and he looks at history from a very, very, very clear perspective and he stands for what he calls western values and uh, his book will make for very interesting reading he's famous for a phrase the facts don't care about your feelings uh, and uh, it would be wonderful to have him on the show as well also looking forward into June there is a book called The Last Elephants which is a magnificent magnificent picture book with essays it was published by Random House, Penguin Random House, South Africa, and hopefully one of the two or maybe even both of the the men behind this book will join us in the studios to talk about their project, this book, The Last Elephants, a very important photo um, essay document about the shrinking number of elephants living in the wild in Africa. So that's something to look forward to. Over the next month or so um, An interview that was about to happen But just didn't And I was really looking forward to it This is the first book we talk about right now Is I was almost going to interview Mitch Albom He is in South Africa at the moment He is in the Cape And he did an event I think it was last night in Cape Town And uh, he's not here on a book tour He's not here uh on official work He's in South Africa on a holiday And he did One or two events in Cape Town Tantalizingly It was held up to People in the whole country That we could possibly have an interview With Mitch Albom I put my name down And I even received a copy of his latest book But uh, you know People who Can justifiably claim To have Written the best-selling memoir of all time. That's uh, Mitch Albom's book, Tuesdays with Mori. Uh, when they go on holiday, they are entitled to have time for themselves. So I just want to talk about the next person you meet in heaven. Uh, Mitch Albom is an author who he sets out to pull your heartstrings. He sets out to make you look at life through an altered prism. To value the people around you uh, It is sentimental writing But at the same time It's very powerful writing About 20 years ago M Mitch Albom wrote a book Called The Five People You Meet in Heaven And that was about A man called Eddie And Eddie Died Saving the life of a little girl 
Eddie worked at a uh, amusement park, and in saving this girl's life, he died. And in the five people you meet in heaven, Eddie meets his five people in heaven, and he sees how his whole life is recast in a total different light, seeing major events in his life from an altered perspective, the perspective of other people. Now, in the the next person you meet in heaven continues the story of the five people you meet in heaven. And it's the story of the little girl, Annie, who Eddie saved. The accident that killed Eddie left an indelible mark on Annie. Injured, scarred, and unable to remember why, Annie's life is forever changed by guilt. Ravaged mother who whisks her away from the world she knew, bullied by her peers and haunted by something she cannot recall, Annie struggles to find acceptance. When, as a young woman, she reconnects with Paolo, her childhood love, she believes she has finally found happiness. But when her wedding night ends with an unimaginable accident, Annie finds herself on her own heavenly journey and a reunion with Eddie, one of the five people who will show her how her life mattered in ways she could not have fathomed. So this is the next person you meet in heaven. Um, I think a lot of people read Tuesdays with Murray, and that created Mitch Albom as an author to follow. The five people you meet in heaven became an international bestseller. So the next person you meet in heaven, which is really a sequel, will also have a very ready audience waiting for it. It was released, I think, towards the end of last year. I, I read it. It is, it is a sentimental read, but it is a, a book that makes you happy to be alive. We'll be back with some uh, speculative fiction straight after this ad break. The book of love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. And now we're going to look at some speculative fiction. Speculative fiction, yes. Looking at alternative uh, forms of our world. Now, often this is lumped together with science fiction, and it's, it's a genre of writing that you either committed to and you read it, or you've never heard of it, and you don't ever even pick the books up in the bookshop or at book club. But it's actually interesting to see that an author of the caliber of Ian McEwan has just come out with a book which we would put in this speculative fiction category. And it's a genre that asks the reader to imagine a different world that reflects ours quite closely, but is a little bit different from ours, and then to look at an idea or a social construct in this altered reality in order to understand our world a little bit better. So we'll start with the Ian McEwan. Ian McEwan is an author who doesn't really need any introduction, but we'll give him a short one. He's the critically acclaimed author of 17 books. His first published work, a collection of short stories, was First Love, Last Rites. His novels include The Child in Time, which won the 1987 Whitbread Novel of the Year Award, um, Amsterdam, which won the 1998 Booker Prize, Atonement, Saturday, on Chesil Beach, uh, then the, the Children's Act. He's had a few, uh, you could call them comedies, in the same way that I suppose Shakespearean comedies are comedies. 
Solar and Sweet Tooth. His re- most recent book before this one that I'm holding in my hands was Nutshell, which was a retelling of Hamlet, but from the perspective of an unborn fetus. And then here we have Machines Like Me. For people who enjoy serious literary fiction, an Ian McEwan book is an event. It's not the type of thing that just happens and goes unremarked. It is an event and you anticipate an Ian McEwan book. You buy it. You get it. You read it slowly and you let his thoughts play over your mind, make you think about things that you might not have tackled on your own. But you do it in the most beautiful constructed sentences, paragraphs and chapters and you interact with the mind of one of England's greatest living writers. And he challenges you. He doesn't want to give you uh, an entertaining read for the sake of entertainment. He wants, you give, he wants to give you a challenge. And he wants to draw you into his thoughts. And he wants you to grapple with some of the big issues of the early 21st century. And in machines like us, those big issues are artificial intelligence, robots that are almost hum- or human-like. And he wants to ask us, how do we define ourselves as humans? How do we define a robot as an artificial form of life on artificial intelligence? And is there an area where the two actually seem to uh, what's the word? Uh, flow one into the other. But in order to produce such a novel, Ian McEwan sets himself quite a challenge. He sets the book in England in the 1980s, but a very altered England. Maggie Thatcher is the Prime Minister, but at the beginning of the book, England loses the Falkland War to Argentina. Uh, Tony Benn is the leader of Labour, and British politics is in as much turmoil in this alternative England as it is today with Brexit. So there is a very strong contemporary echo in this 1980s alternative England. Another huge change is that Alan Turing, one of the greatest British uh, minds in terms of Science and the beginning of the computer age didn't die in the 1950s. Uh, he 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 survived the the scandal that he was a homosexual, and he found wider acceptance in British society. So he didn't kill himself, as happened in the truth. In the, in the truth, and he's gone on to become basically a, uh, a Steve Jobs of post-war England, starting one technology startup after the next, and creating a world of technology in the 1980s that we're very familiar with today in the 2000s and 19s, but. It's much faster. They all have cell phones. There's the sense of the internet. There's everything we have today, but it's set in the 1980s. And the 
the pace with which technology is altering lives is so fast that it's another echo of our contemporary world, but set in a parallel England. Now, the story starts with a new product coming on the market, a robot that has been created using artificial intelligence, open source artificial intelligence coding that has flowed out of Alan Turing's laboratories and into products. There were 25 robots made, 13 women, 12 men. The women were all called Eve, the men are all called Adam, and they were very expensive. And the protagonist in the book, Charlie, buys a robot. He's a 30-year-old drifter. He sits at home and he trades stocks on the stock exchange. So that's a day trader. Uh, he studied anthropology, but he hasn't had much success career-wise, professionally, nor in romance, nor in love, nor in his personal life. And he decides to buy a robot. He wanted to buy an Eve, but they were all sold out. A lot of them went to the Gulf states because the Arabs in this parallel world in the 1980s are very rich. And so he buys an Adam. More with uh, a view of an anthropology, an anthropologist student trying to understand the future than anything else. He is involved with a girl who stays upstairs from him in his block of flats and he decides that they will tackle Adam as a joint project instead of having children because they're not married they'll parent Adam so when it comes to setting the different personality settings for this robot he sets half and he lets Miranda his girlfriend set the other half and then they interact with Adam and Adam is an artificial intelligence life form who becomes a member of the extended network of people. This is the story that, this is the setting for the story that Ian McEwen creates in Machines Like Me. Uh, and once again, nothing is as it seems on the surface. Miranda has quite a interesting backstory that Char- Charlie isn't aware of, but Adam the robot is because he can access the internet in seconds and he can find out anything about anyone that is available on the internet. And he, he, he can just in the middle of sitting at the kitchen table, say to Charlie, don't trust her. He doesn't say any more, but Charlie now knows that Adam, who has unbelievable access to any public documents and everything on the Internet, knows more about his girlfriend than he does. During the course of the novel, we start hearing that some of these robots have deliberately destroyed themselves because life in... A human world can be very difficult for a programmed artificial intelligence robot. How do you accept lies when you when you programmed to deal with truth? How do you deal with the type of gritty interpersonal relationships when you 
are a robot. This is all part of the mix that goes into the book, asking us to investigate whether an artificial intelligence can be viewed as a form of life, or is it just a robot? Is it just a computer program? Is it just an algorithm? A lot of difficult questions are raised in the course of the book. And then to complicate matters, uh, there is a bit of a love triangle that forms between Charlie, the person who bought the robot, Miranda's girlfriend, and Adam, the robot himself. And then Charlie meets a dysfunctional family in the park. The father is a drug addict, the, the, uh, the mother also, and they have a five-year-old child, Mark, who is eventually sent to Charlie's flat with a note. Here, he's yours. Adopt him. And Miranda and Charlie decide they would like to raise this child. Obviously, they've got to go through social services and the welfare departments in London. But this becomes another part of the novel where we're looking at raising a child as opposed to looking after or including a robot in your network of friends. So we have all these different themes playing out with beautiful, beautiful writing by Ian McEwan in this parallel 1980s altered reality that makes a lot of sense. And then this like real <laughs> literary confection, the cherry on the top, is that Alan Turing makes multiple appearances in the novel as well. So Charlie, who looks up to Alan Turing as one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, gets to meet his hero a few times, and they discuss this artificial intelligence robot, Adam. So it's also interesting to see Alan Turing's thoughts on some of the fruits of the technology that he brought to the world. So this is Ian McEwan's Machines Like Me. It is a very enjoyable read, as well as being a, a read that challenges the reader. I don't want to call it a challenging read because it actually is very accessible, but it's a read that challenges us to think about where technology is taking us. And I think like really good fiction should, this is exactly what Ian McEwan is doing. He's using his master skills as a novelist and a voice of British literature to force us, the reader, to engage with some of the very important moral and social and psychological uh, ideas where the world's heading with the technology that we have at our fingertips. So I highly recommend Machines Like Me, Ian McEwan, for anyone who wants to delve into the mind of one of the greatest living authors writing in English today. Then the next alternate or speculative fiction book that I want to look at is the new book by Ben H. Winters. It's called Golden State. I reviewed his previous book here on Chai FM. That was called Underground Airlines. Ben Winters is a young writer, he's an American, and he really also creates these alternative forms of the world that we're living in. Uh, 
Underground Airlines is the better of these two books. So if you are going to read a Ben Winters, get get hold of Underground Airlines. But Golden State is still very good. There's nothing wrong with it as a book. Air, Underground Airlines was set in... 2017, 2016 It came out in that it was 2018 The year that it came out in And it looked at America If things had gone Differently at the time of the American Civil War and if The South had been allowed To break away and form The Confederacy and they Allowed They were still allowed To keep slaves they were kept within the Union. So you had one country, America, that had two parts, a southern core that still allowed for slavery, and the rest of America, which banned slavery. And now this southern core, even in the the second decade of the 21st century, still practiced slavery. Now there were slaves who try to break away and escape and get to the north where they could claim freedom. Instead of the Underground Railroad, which was the actual uh, historical um, routes that were fo- or routes network of routes that were followed in the, the 1800s, here there's the Underground Airlines. It's just updated, but you had slaves breaking away from big corporate entities that kept slaves as part of their balance sheets, and in the north there was an agreement that if a slave came to the north and they were caught by the American government, they would be sent back to the south. A former slave, a black man, is in one of those positions as a slave catcher, and he gets wind of some big plan for a slave to break out of the south. So that's underground airways. Brilliant. It was a great, great, great imagining of a different world with so many common elements that uh, would make that fictional speculative reality still understandable to modern readers. Golden State is slightly more uh, alternative or speculative in its creation of a new state. During the course of the book, we, we understand that there's been some cataclysmic event that somehow destroyed America as we know it. And Whole states or whole cities were cut off from the rest of America. The people who did survive then built new city-states on the remnants of what was there before. But no one really knows about life before this big event. And we are in a city that was built on top of Los Angeles, or not really on top of, but within Los Angeles, but no one really knows what Los Angeles was before, and it's just called the Golden State. And when they see these big letters on the mountainside that spell out Hollywood, they know that it was something important to the previous state that was there, but they don't know what it was. The Golden State is a country that is built on the truth, and in this alternative reality, every single thing that a person does, they have to document. The cameras everywhere. Filming everything, and that's all archived. At the end of every day, a person keeps a personal diary where they write what they did. When they have a conversation with somebody, they've got to then write down in their diary what that conversation was about, and each person who was part of that conversation has to stamp it so that it exists 
the truth is established every single minute of the day and verified. This is the golden state. And within the golden state, you have different levels of law enforcement. And besides the police, there is a special police force called the speculators, the speculators. And they, the only people who are allowed to speculate on what possibly happened at a crime scene to try and work out different possibilities so they could then investigate the crime. Laz Ratesik is a veteran of the Golden State's special police. Those in power trust him to find the full and final truth. When a man falls from a roof in a suspicious circumstance, it sets in motion a terrifying series of events which will shatter Laz's world forever. Because when those in control of the truth decide to twist it, only those with the power to ask questions can fight back. So this is golden state. It's an alternative reality. You can't really call it science fiction. It's speculative fiction. And it's looking at a society built on the truth and how they deal with crimes where people in power are trying to cover up the truth. We'll be back with more books, but we'll get into the real world straight after this ad break. The book of love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. Well, now is giveaway time, so sit next to your radio and have your cell phone out. If you're in the car, pull over, get your cell phone out. We're going to give two books away. They are the books... Queen of the Free State, a memoir, and then the following, the follow-up, The Messiah's Dream Machine. We're giving them away because The Messiah's Dream Machine has just been launched, and Jennifer Friedman was in the country for the launch of this book. The Queen of the Free State, a memoir, was a huge book here in South Africa. I think a lot of our listeners on 101.9 High FM, and especially your people of the book, have read the book. Jennifer Friedman was born and raised in the Orange Free State in South Africa. She studied at the University of Cape Town, and the Afrikaans poetry has been published in various academic journals. She immigrated with her husband and children in 1992 to Sydney, Australia, where she attained her pilot's license. After her husband's death in 1997, Friedman bought her own Grumman Tiger plane, and she flies to the small outback towns and stations around Australia, often just for a lunch date and wherever the sun is shining. She now lives on the central coast of New South Wales with her partner. The first book we're going to give away is Queen of the Free State. And this is what it says on the back of the book. The Outsider on the Inside the one who watches and listens, the bearer of tales. Growing up Jewish in a small town in the Free State in the 50s and 60s, Jennifer Friedman moves between child and adult, black and white, as Favut's grand apartheid is dividing South Africa. There are midnight escapes, stolen loot and banned comics, frog's legs, astetfords, icy drives with grandpa, hideous encounters with bras, terrifying policemen, albino messengers, and pa's beatings. Told with humor and pathos, Friedman's memoir brings to life a strong sense of place, love, rebellion, and betrayal. To win yourself a copy, all you've got to do is WhatsApp or SMS us. The WhatsApp number is 061 
The SMS number is 34519. Please send us a WhatsApp or an SMS with your name and the title of the book that you are currently reading. The first person to get through will win a copy of Queen of the Free State, unless you've won something in the last few months, in which case we go to the second person who sends us. So that's the WhatsApp number 0618951019 or the SMS number 34519. And then the second book we're giving away is The Messiah's Dream Machine. This sequel to Jennifer Friedman's enchanting first memoir picks up where Queen of the Free State leaves off, as the rebellious young Jennifer is packed off to boarding school in Cape Town. Told with humor and pathos, the theme of displacement of the outsider is explored as we follow Jennifer's journey into adulthood, becoming a wife, a mother, living in Johannesburg and Israel, immigration and leave-takings in Australia. A strong sense of love, loyalty and place prevails, especially on a trip's home to a beloved free state. Expect stories about train journeys, windmills and floods, dead bodies on deck chairs, certifiably crazy home help, babies, secrets and redemption, a Jewish-British bulldog and the Messiah's favorite place. So that is the Messiah's dream machine. To win this book, just to be further down the list of SMSs or WhatsApps coming in, just send us a WhatsApp on 0618951019, an SMS on 34519 with your name and the title of the book that you are currently reading. The next book we're going to look at is called The Pianist of Yarmouk. It's by Ahmad Ahmad. It's the breathtaking true story of one man's search for peace in Syria. One morning on the outskirts of Damascus, a starving man is walking through a familiar street that is now rubble. The buildings around him have been turned inside out. The man, Aham, turns to the only comfort he knows and pushes his piano into the street to play a song of hope to his fellow Syrians. It is an act that could get him killed, but it is a song that reaches far beyond the streets of his home and leads him on a journey, not just of hope, but one which will save his whole family. In the pianist of Yamuk, Syrian refugee Aham, Aham Ahmad tells the story of how an act of defiance and love changed the future for his own family and that of his Syrian brothers and sisters. On the front cover of the book, there is a picture of this destroyed scene, of city scene in Syria, all the buildings look like they've been shelled and are damaged. There's just an, a, the middle of the road. You can see cars have gone over and the side of the roads. There's just rubble, bricks, rubbish. And in the middle of the picture, there's a man sitting on a chair playing a piano. That is Aham Ahmad. Now, to give a sense of this book, I'm just going to read the prologue, which is about the photo. A photo can never really tell you what happened before or what came after. Like that picture of me sitting at a piano singing a song amid the rubble of my neighborhood. It was reprinted by newspapers all over the world, and some people said it's one of the photos that will help us remember the Syrian civil war. An image larger than war. But when I think back to that moment, I think of another image, superimposed on all the rest. An image of three birds. That morning before daybreak, I had gone out for water, together with my friends, Marwan and Raed. Getting water was back-breaking work. 
We had to rise early and push a 260-gallon tank on a cart to one of the last working pipes in the neighborhood, then fill up the tank and push it back home. We lived in Yamuk, a suburb of Damascus. The armies of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad had cut us off from the rest of the world. We had no water, no electricity, no bread, no rice. By that time, more than a 100 people had died of starvation. After my friends and I had delivered the water to our street, I decided to get some more sleep. But a little while later, my two-year-old son, Ahmad, whispered something in my ear and then playfully poked his tiny finger into my eye. Ouch! I jumped out of bed. Clearly, I wasn't going to get any more rest. I decided to heat up some water with cinnamon. We had run out of coffee and tea a long time ago, but there was plenty of cinnamon ever since a group of militants had stormed a local spice depot. It hadn't seemed like such a bad haul at first. All that cinnamon. But think about it. Who needs cinnamon when you don't even have bread or sugar? And why was, and that's why it was ridiculously cheap. Several months earlier, a few young men from the neighborhood had started a music group. We had been performing out in the streets, standing around my upright piano. Every day we hauled it out on a cart, carefully steering it through the rubble. We sang to escape the ever-present hunger that was gnawing at us. Our performances were popular on YouTube, but the people in my neighborhood could barely be bothered. And who can blame them? When you're hungry, you can't think about anything else. On that day, the two of us had agreed to meet with a photographer named Niraz Said. Marwan and I began pushing the piano, which was unbelievably heavy. Usually there were six or seven of us carefully maneuvering it through the torn-up streets. We turned onto Palestine Street, which had once been a bustling commercial center and was now deserted. The damage there was staggering. The ruined buildings were like concrete skeletons, giant tombstones reaching into the sky. Entire walls had been torn off, revealing the insides of various apartments with pipes and cables sticking out. The street was littered with heaps of rubble, with weeds growing among them. I sat down at the piano and thought about what I should sing. I'd written dozens of songs in the past few months. They had simply poured out of me. Then I remembered a poem scribbled on a piece of paper that a man had given me a few days earlier. His name was Zaid al-Karaf. In the old days, he sold honey in our neighborhood. He was very cultured and educated, and he used to be quite wealthy. I knew him only in passing. Ziad had a doctorate, but I don't know, but I don't know in what. I do know that the honey was merely his hobby. He used to take trips to the hills outside of town to meet with local beekeepers. Sometimes he even went abroad to countries like Yemen, where he would sample new blends of honey. But that was then, before the war. This is People of the Book on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm reading from the prologue of The Pianist of Yarmouk. We'll be back with a little bit more straight after this ad break. Book of Love is long and boring. This is People of the Book with Stephen Kravitz. Just to say, we've got two winners for the books, The Messiah's Dream Machine and The Queen of the Free State. Uh, the front office of the radio of Chai FM will be calling our winners straight after the show uh, to inform them that they've won these two wonderful books. I'm reading from the prologue to The, pa- P- the Pianist of Yarmouk, one of the um, one of the books to come out of the... The Syrian Civil War. 
Ziad had written the poem for his wife. She had been in the lo- she had been in the last weeks of pregnancy, and had transferred papers for Damascus, so that she could give birth to her child there. But something had gone wrong at the checkpoint. The soldiers wouldn't let her pass. Apparently, some bureaucrat had misspelled her name. She had to spend hours waiting while they tried to correct the error. When it became too much for her, she collapsed and fell onto her stomach. She died on her way to the clinic. The baby survived. Ziad had loved his wife more than anything. They had married for love. It wasn't an arranged marriage. His wife had been his best friend. They had three daughters. Their new baby was their first son. As the photographer was setting up his camera, a woman appeared carrying a tray. She had decided to make coffee for us, using the last bit she had, which she had saved for a special occasion. She wanted to share it with us and listen to the music. What you're doing is very important, she said, pouring me a cup. I smiled at her with immense gratitude, savoring the wonderfully bitter taste of the coffee. Then I noticed a chirping sound and looked up to see three birds perched on a second-story balcony right across from me. It seemed a miracle, for normally birds vanish as soon as the shooting begins. Only very few of them find their way back to Yarmouk, and those are usually shot down because people are hungry. When I began to play, the three birds started singing again. Everything came together for me, the chirping of the birds, which I hadn't heard in so many months, the the aroma of the coffee, which I had been longing for, the rage born out of hunger, my aching eyes where my son had poked me, the lingering taste of cinnamon, my exhaustion from getting water that morning, and the haunted gaze of Ziad al-Kharaf when he'd asked me to make his poem into a song. Ziad's pain, the starving children of Yamuk, and our brother's disappearance were all tearing at my heart. I was angry that the piano was out of tune, angry at my wounded hand. Closing my eyes, I began to sing, pouring all my despair into Ziad's poem. My song became a cry, the cry of a man plunging into an abyss and giving voice to his descent into hell. That was when Niraz must have snapped the picture. Today people sometimes ask me, when you lived in that camp, what color was your tent? Although Yamuk was officially a refugee camp, It was, in fact, a real neighborhood with real buildings. I used to own an apartment, a nice, spacious apartment. I sold odes, and my business had been thriving, but the war had destroyed it all. A grenade had cut the tendon between two of my fingers. A girl had been standing next to my piano one day, had been shot to death, and finally the Islamic State had burned my instruments to the ground. I would soon be exiled from Yamuk, forced to leave my world behind. I would become one of those miserable grey figures, one of the millions, who are now streaming into Europe. Some people think we only came to get a share of the wealth, but they don't understand us, don't know why we are forced to come. They're afraid of us. And that is why I want to tell my story now in these pages. I want to raise my voice to dispel some of the fear and the lies, for pictures too can lie, even if they contain a trace of the truth. That is the prologue to The Pianist of Yarmouk by Ahmad Ahmad. It's a breathtaking true story of one man's search for peace in Syria. And that is the end of our show. Um, Janine Bloch and Linda Silva, who are listening to the show and entered our competition, will be calling you from the office shortly about your, your, your books. And until next week when we'll get to some of the thrillers I wanted to do today, Twisted by Steve Cavanaugh and The Chestnut Man by Soren Zweistrup.
Keep reading and good Shabbos.